Welcome to your weekly Come Follow Me with David Ridges podcast. I'm your guest host, Ari Vandegraaff. I'm excited to be filling in for David Ridges this week. I'm the author of the Scripture Power Activity book. I also manage a website called wordcartoonist.com, where I publish Latter-day Saint-themed comic strips twice a week. Being a cartoonist requires one to be extra observant and to look at the world in a different light. I can't afford to doze off during a Sunday school lesson for fear of missing a joke idea. Those skills make a cartoonist the perfect substitute for a fantastic scriptorian like Brother Ridges. At least, that's what I've told myself to psych myself up as I've accepted this awesome responsibility. This week we are covering the story of Samuel the Lamanite. Of all the prophets in the Book of Mormon, we might know the least about Samuel. Outside the fact that he would definitely be the first pick of a team for any game of dodgeball, what do we know about this guy? He shows up unannounced, gives his message, returns even unto his own country, and is never heard of more among the Nephites. As far as prophets with mysterious backstories go, perhaps the closest comparison to Samuel is Abinadi another prophet we know next to nothing about. Although, at least we got a couple more chapters with Abinadi than we do with Samuel. Maybe it is because of his mysterious backstory that Samuel is endlessly fascinating to me. Think of it. For nearly 600 years, the Nephites had viewed the Lamanites as a wicked, fallen people. And now, here comes a Lamanite into the very heart of the Nephite civilization, Zarahemla itself, to declare the word of God. Keep in mind that some 25 years earlier, the Lamanites had invaded Zarahemla and conquered the land for a time. I suspect that still stings. And now a Lamanite is preaching to the Nephites with the audacity to call them to repentance. Of course, by the time Samuel shows up, the Lamanites are more righteous than the Nephites. Helaman chapter 13 begins by explaining that In the eighty and sixth year, the Nephites did still remain in wickedness, yea, in great wickedness, while the Lamanites did observe strictly to keep the commandments of God according to the law of Moses. Twenty-five years earlier, the brothers Nephi and Lehi had concluded a remarkable missionary effort that led to the conversion of nearly the entire Lamanite nation. Since then, relationships between the Nephites and Lamanites had greatly improved, although both nations struggled through several spins of the pride cycle in the interim. Still, this is a Lamanite condemning the Nephites. It would have been a bitter pill to swallow. One might wonder, then, why the Lord didn't charge the prophet Nephi to deliver the message found in Helaman chapters 13-15. through 15. By the time of Samuel's arrival, Nephi is arguably the most accomplished prophet in Book of Mormon history. Not only did he and his brother play a major role in the conversion of the Lamanite nation, but he also identified the murder of the chief judge and called down, and later suspended, a famine through the sealing power bestowed upon him by the Lord. Given all that Nephi accomplished, it is little surprise at the beginning of 3rd Nephi that it is implied that he was translated and taken up to his reward. Simply put, with Nephi, the Lord could have chosen a messenger who would have commanded much more respect than Samuel to deliver such an important message. This wasn't the first time the Lord subverts expectations in calling a servant. Shoot, 
It wasn't even the first time he did so with a guy named Samuel. And it definitely won't be the last. In speaking through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord makes clear that my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. Perhaps, given the humble nature of Christ's birth, the Lord needed a humble messenger to share the details of that birth. Jesus Christ, who was called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace in the Old Testament, was to be born in a stable, not a palace. He was not to be a political messiah shaping nations, but a spiritual one molding individual hearts. Whatever the reason, I'm glad that the Lord entrusted Samuel to deliver his important message. It highlights an important message for all of us, one that is repeated throughout the Book of Mormon. God's word can come from any number of sources. Jump forward nearly 40 years in the record. In the midst of Christ's ministry to the righteous people at Bountiful, he loosed the tongues of the children of the multitude, insomuch that they did speak unto their fathers and mothers great and marvelous things. Or, jump backward nearly 70 years in the record. Alma is teaching the Zoramite poor about faith and shares this this interesting counsel. And now he imparteth his word by angels unto men, Yea, not only men, but women also. Now this is not all. Little children do have words given unto them many times, which confound the wise and the learned. By the way, I'm sure Alma's failure to include teenagers in this verse was in no way a comment on kids these days. Now I am not in no way suggesting that any of these messengers replace the church's prophet in his role as leader of the kingdom on earth. Even in Samuel's case, the people who accepted Samuel's message sought out Nephi, the leader of the church for baptism. There is an order to Christ's church, and we should expect instruction for the church to come from the prophet, just like we should expect instruction for our stakes and wards to come through our stake presidents and bishops. But we can be inspired and taught by even the most humble of messenger. President Irene shared an experience that highlights this truth. This is from a BYU fireside given in 1988. It requires a humble heart to believe that you can be taught by someone who apparently knows a good deal less than you do and perhaps seems less likely to get revelation. When I was the president of Ricks College years ago now, I remember having a man who was my priesthood leader come to my house each month to interview me about my home teaching. He'd come to our home on Yale Avenue and come and sit in my study. He brought with him a gray notebook. You know those church loose leaves that sort of have the name of the church on the front? It was not very fancy. And uh, he opened it each time he'd come to see me. He had a pen or a pencil. He wrote notes. He recorded not only my report as a home teacher, but my observations about the gospel and life as well. I remember at first being very flattered. I thought he really knew someone who knew something when he saw one. And uh, I, I realized that, that uh, he was conscious that uh, I must be saying something of great worth. Well, I was flattered only at first. Then one Sunday, he and I were visiting what was then called Junior Sunday School. 
He was a few rows in front of me. If I remember, he was sitting a little bit off to my right. I glanced at him, and speaking was a little girl, no more than six or seven, probably not yet old enough to have the gift of the Holy Ghost. She was at the pulpit, and I noticed with surprise that he had the same gray notebook open. As she spoke, he was writing with as much speed and intensity as he had in the study of my home. I learned a lesson from him that I haven't forgotten. He had faith that God could speak to him as clearly through a child as through the president of a college. And with that lesson in mind, let's turn to the Book of Mormon and review the words Samuel gives on the wall of Zarahemla. In Helaman chapter 13, we learn that Samuel was first sent to Zarahemla to share glad tidings with the Nephites of that city. But after several days of preaching with little success, he was thrown out of the city and ready to return to his own people. It was then that the voice of the Lord came to Samuel, commanding him to return to Zarahemla and prophesy unto the people whatsoever things should come into his heart. Finding the city closed to him, the unconquerable Samuel climbed the city wall and began to teach the people. Samuel's message to the residents of Zarahemla isn't one of glad tidings at first. He begins by warning them that the Nephite nation will be destroyed in 400 years. Okay, can we pause for a minute and just consider what these words must have meant to Mormon as he abridged the Book of Mormon? Nearly Mormon's entire life consisted of war. He was made the chief captain of the Nephite armies at the remarkable age of 15. Tell that to your teacher or priest the next time he complains about the amount of chores you've assigned him around the house. He led his armies for 35 years against unfavorable odds. While doing so, he found himself repeatedly pleading for his people to repent. After serving as the leader of the Nephite army for over three decades, Mormon stepped away from the army as a 50-year-old for a period of time anywhere between 8 and 18 years. If I had to guess, I suspect it was at this time of his life, when he stepped away from leading the Nephite armies, that Mormon abridged the large plates of Nephi into the bulk of the Book of Mormon. Can you imagine how hard it would have been for Mormon to read this prophecy of Samuel? Incidentally, Alma the Younger gave a similar prophecy to his son Helaman. Mormon would have done the math and would have known that the cause in which he had spent 35 years engaged in was destined to fail. What does it say, then, of Mormon's great character that he still returns to lead the Nephite army now in his 60s, despite their hopeless cause? I love that about Mormon. I love the level of caring he shows his people. I see that level of care in his efforts in compiling the Book of Mormon. Okay, thanks for indulging me in that quick aside. Let's return to Samuel. Book of Mormon Central, a nonprofit organization dedicated to building enduring faith in Jesus Christ by making the Book of Mormon accessible, comprehensible, and defensible to the entire world, highlights an interesting observation about Samuel's prophecy of the Nephite nation's destruction in 400 years. Citing the work of Latter-day Saint Mesoamericanist John E. Clark, Book of Mormon Central observes that the major cycle of Mayan time was a 400-year period called a Bakhtun. What is even more interesting is that each Bakhtun is broken up 
into 20-year periods of time called katuns, and each katun is broken up into a five-year period of time called a hotun. Quoting from the Book of Mormon Central website, It is significant that both of Samuel the Lamanite's time-specific prophecies correlate to the specific units of measurement within the Mesoamerican calendrical system. As Clark put it, Samuel the Lamanite warned the Nephites that one baktun shall not pass away before they would be smitten. Another LDS Mesoamericanist, Mark Wright, suggested, Samuel the Lamanite may have been making a hotun prophecy when he stated that in five years, signs would be given concerning the birth of Christ. Book of Mormon Central further makes the point that the Mesoamerican view of time was cyclical, meaning that they expected events to repeat themselves over the course of each baktun. Along this line of thinking, then, when Samuel is prophesying of the destruction of the Nephite nation in 400 years, he is also warning of their potential imminent destruction. For more on this fascinating subject on the relationship between Samuel's prophecies and Mesoamerican cycles of time, please do a Google search for the Book of Mormon Central article titled, Why Did Samuel Make Such Chronologically Precise Prophecies? Of course, Samuel does implicitly prophesy of the imminent destruction of Zarahemla, declaring, Yea, woe unto this great city of Zarahemla, for behold, it is because of those who are righteous that it is saved. But behold, it is for the righteous' sake that it is spared. But behold, the time cometh, saith the Lord, that when ye shall cast out the righteous from among you, then shall ye be ripe for destruction. Yea, woe be unto this great city, because of the wickedness and abominations which are in her. Samuel's prophecy of the destruction of Zarahemla is later confirmed in 3 Nephi chapter 9, amidst the destruction that followed Christ's crucifixion. Given Samuel's warning that the, that the people of Zarahemla were spared for the righteous sake during his time, it is ironic that five years later, the sign of Christ's birth spared the lives of not only the righteous Nephites living in Zarahemla, but also those wicked Nephites living in Zarahemla poised to kill them. Here, then, is a powerful message for each of us living in a time of pandemic and social unrest to live righteously, not only to bless the lives of ourselves and our families, but also our communities and nations. Samuel's message isn't without comfort. He tells the people that if you will repent and return unto the Lord your God, I will turn away mine anger, saith the Lord. Yea, thus saith the Lord, blessed are they who will repent and turn unto me. In fact, Samuel's message is full of admonitions to repent. According to my calculations, In the 82 verses Mormon quotes Samuel, Samuel talks of repentance in 19 of them. For a people so far gone that they'd prohibit a prophet from entering their city, leaving him no other avenue to speak to them except upon the city wall, it says something of God's love that he would continue to offer them the opportunity to repent. Several years ago, I had an experience that drove home to me Christ's tireless love for us and his patient willingness to rescue us again and again. We have a number of quail family that show up in our yard every summer. We love catching sight of the parents and their chicks. Quail chicks are incredibly small and helpless. Quails nest on the ground, so their chicks scurry behind their parents long before they can fly. As a result, these chicks are especially vulnerable. 
Inevitably, once or twice a summer, while the quail chicks are young, we'll find a family of quail trapped in one of our window wells. As best as I can figure, one of the chicks falls into the well and gets trapped. The mother quail, concerned for her child, jumps down the well to investigate, and then all of the other chicks blindly follow their mother into the well. At our house, it is my job to rescue these quail. While we marvel at the stupidity of these birds who always seem to find themselves returning to the same predicament again and again, one day I rescued the same family from two separate wells. I would never consider abandoning them to their fate. Once, as I was fishing out a family of chicks for the second or third time in the course of a week, I was struck with an insight that this must be how the Savior feels about us. We, like Quell, sometimes find ourselves in the same pits, unable to rescue ourselves. We, like Quell, must rely on someone else to save us. And we, like Quell, can have faith that no matter how many times we find ourselves in a hole, salvation will come. Only, unlike my imperfect efforts with our quail, the Savior will always be there for us. The balance of Helam in chapter 13 further includes Samuel's warnings of Nephite greed and hypocrisy. And then, graciously, despite the wickedness and hard-heartedness of the people of Zarahemla, Samuel shares some of the glad tidings the angel brought him earlier. Because the Lord, seemingly, can't help but bless us despite all our efforts to push him away. Samuel testifies of the reality of Jesus Christ and prophesies of the signs associated with his birth five years in the future. He also describes the signs associated with Christ's death and resurrection 33 years after his birth. It is significant that the signs of Christ's birth and resurrection center around light. A day, a night, and a day, as if it were one day, and there were no night. A new star shall arise, and the return of light after three days of darkness. While the signs of Christ's crucifixion and death center around darkness, the sun shall be darkened, and refuse to give his light unto you, and also the moon and the stars. Just as it was for the Nephites and Lamanites in the years following Samuel's prophecy, We find an abundance of light when Christ is present in our lives, and darkness when he is not. Doctrine and Covenants, section 50, verse 24 reads, That which is of God is light, and he that receiveth light, and continueth in God, receiveth more light, and that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. As I record this, the Western Hemisphere is moving into fall. The days are getting shorter and shorter. At the same time, we are facing a pandemic that makes congregating with friends and family challenging. Many of us are facing a bleak, dark winter in the coming days. Jesus Christ is the antidote to that darkness. COVID presents many challenges to all of us. It has taken lives and livelihoods. But for many of us, it has also forced us to slow down This can be a good thing if we will follow the Lord's admonition to be still and know that I am God. I am convinced that if we dedicate a little bit of time afforded us to welcome Christ more fully into our lives through scripture study, prayer, and worship, we will make the coming days more bright. Samuel's comforting message of the light that heralded the coming of Christ applies to each of us and the light we'll enjoy if we'll welcome Christ into our lives. 
Samuel reassures the Nephites that all his preaching is a sign of God's love. As he puts it, The people of Nephi hath the Lord loved, and also hath he chastened them. Yea, in the days of their iniquities hath he chastened them, because he loveth them. This is a familiar concept to any parent. Sometimes children need to suffer consequences, like a timeout or a grounding, to learn to change behavior. Sometimes they have to do hard things like clean their rooms or other chores to develop character. And sometimes they have to sacrifice something they want now for something better later to learn self-control and patience. As a fourth grader, I experienced something that felt like a great chastisement that turned out to be a great blessing. As a grade, we were shepherded into the cafeteria where there were lines around the outside of the room where we were all to receive an eye exam by a volunteer. The students who didn't correctly identify enough letters on the eye exam were sent to a second line where they repeated the exam under the supervision of the school nurse. To my horror, I failed my first test and was sent to the nurse's line. Now there is something you need to know about 10-year-old boys, specifically this 10-year-old boy. There is nothing in life more devastating than eyeglasses. As I made this slow walk from one side of the cafeteria to the other, I frantically tried to think of a way out of my predicament. And, wouldn't you know it, I found it. I cleverly stood close to another eye chart and quickly memorized the letters. My plan worked. I recited every letter perfectly. The school nurse excused me, and I went merrily on my way. Only... I still struggled to see what my teacher wrote on the chalkboard from my seat. A couple of weeks later, I knew what I had to do. I told my mom that I thought I needed glasses and asked her to make an appointment with an eye doctor. Sure enough, I was prescribed glasses. A pretty strong prescription, too. I thought I had been singled out and cursed with bad eyesight. Life was unfair. I was unconsolable. I remember crying one day shortly after my exam and before my glasses arrived to my teacher, Miss Hannah. She did her best to console me, reminding me that she too wore glasses. Yeah, I sobbed, but you're old. I'm sure poor Miss Hannah, a recent college graduate, didn't quite know what to say after that. Something remarkable happened on the day I received my first pair of glasses, though. All of a sudden, a whole new world opened up to me. I remember driving home from the optometrist's office, commenting to my parents how remarkable it was that the trees we passed had individual leaves. Thanks to good eye care, my life is magnitudes better. What seemed like a huge setback at the time was in reality a great blessing. No one's life will go exactly how we plan it. There will be times when we feel like we are being chastened of the Lord and life isn't fair, but we should never doubt his love for us. He has a plan for us and knows what is best for us. As Samuel concluded his address, the unbelieving Nephites shot arrows and threw stones in his direction, while those who believed sought out the prophet Nephi to confess their sins and be baptized. Samuel observed that the extremely negative response to his message came because I am a Lamanite and have spoken unto you the words which the Lord hath commanded me, and because it was hard against you. You are angry with me and do seek to destroy me. Each of us will have experiences in this church where the words of the prophet will be hard against us. Will we respond with stones and arrows, 
or with humility and repentance. Like most of us, my response to the instruction of prophets has waxed and waned over the years. If I may, I'd like to share one more experience that blessed my life and the life of my family as we followed the counsel of a prophet. In August of 2005, President Gordon B. Hinckley challenged families of the church to read the Book of Mormon in its entirety before the end of the year. At that time, my wife and I had a four-year-old and a two-year-old. We knew that finding a way to share the Book of Mormon with them would be a challenge, but we resolved to follow the prophet. In doing so, we settled upon a new bedtime routine. After tucking our children into bed each night, we then opened the scriptures in the hallway outside their rooms and read to them from the Book of Mormon. Most nights our children were asleep long before we finished our reading. But in this way we finished the Book of Mormon before the end of the year. And more importantly, that five-month practice has continued throughout the years. In time, our practice moved from the hallway into the family room, and from my wife and I taking turns to read to everyone in the family reading. Our four-year-old is now a missionary, and I am constantly amazed and humbled to read the scriptural insights he offers in his emails home. I'd like to think that some of his understanding of the scriptures came through our family scripture study. We have been richly blessed by our decision 15 years ago to follow the prophet. As we conclude our discussion of the Book of Mormon prophet Samuel, I testify that we will all be blessed as we follow his counsel as well as the counsel of the other prophets, both ancient and living. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more Come Follow Me teaching materials, visit cedarfort.com. Use code CFPODCAST to save 15% on your entire order. That's C as in cedar and F as in fort, podcast, for 15% off your entire order.